The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here, taking you through the first hour. This is the fifth day of March, 2023, in case you're just waking up. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is across the way, as always. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. So glad that you can be with us. Got a great show lined up for you tonight, as always. Leading off, we'll speak with former Major League second baseman for the Mariners, the Reds, and the host of his own great podcast, Brett Boone, will join us. In the second half, we'll switch gears, as we do on occasion, and welcome in the former member of Buffalo Springfield, Poco, Loggins, and Messina. Jim Messina will be with us. So sit back, relax, get comfortable. Enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight on WGBB. As always, a great show, great people, sports talk, sports memories up ahead tonight. You're going to enjoy it, so just take it easy. Social media. As always, before we begin, I invite you to follow us on Facebook. We are out there. Give us a look and give us a like. You can also follow us on LinkedIn. On Twitter at WGBB Sports Talk. And you can follow me, myself, on Twitter at B Donahue, WGBB, and all past shows. If you miss one, don't you worry because they're all out on the website. You can listen to them at your leisure. Well, our first guest, three time All Star, four time Gold Glove winner, two time Silver Slugger Award winner, the ALRBI leader in 2001. And we know him as a third-generation professional athlete. His brother, Aaron, of course, is the manager of the much-despised New York Yankees. We welcome in Brett Boone tonight. Brett, good evening. Hey, Bill. How you doing? Ah, we're doing great, Brett. Great to have you with us tonight. Now, uh, I know as a child you hung out in the Phillies clubhouse with, with Pete Jr., uh, your brother Aaron, uh, Ryan Luzinski, Mark McGraw. Now, you had your sports heroes right there. Who else could it be but one of these guys? I mean, your dad was Bob Boone, so many great ball players around. Was there someone else you looked up to, or these guys were quite enough for you? I think they were quite enough. Yeah. And growing up, I didn't have a, uh, you know, I didn't have a favorite player. Everybody always said, who's your favorite player? So I didn't have any. <laughs> I, I loved them all. You yeah. know, I loved them all. And, um, yeah, you look back on, on that kind of childhood at the time. You, you, I think, as every kid does, you kind of take it for granted and think, well, it doesn't every every kid just get to go to work with their dad and get hang out at the vet and, <laughs> yeah. and get to do stuff like that. But looking back, uh, it's such a special childhood. And to be honest with you, when all the, when it was all said and done, and I really reflect back on who was the biggest influence. All those guys were great and, and a great part of my childhood. And I learned from a lot of different people. But, you know, my dad, to me, was still the guy I looked to. 
And it wasn't from uh, a baseball perspective, how, how you play the game. My dad never taught me one thing about baseball. Uh-huh. He gave me a glove and a bat. He said, go get them. And, but he did teach me how to be a pro, how, how to behave correctly. Uh, you know, I watched him for a lot of years play, play in the big leagues. And, and that's the one thing I learned and, and the one guy I looked to. And, and, uh, so I, not to sound cheesy and say dad was my favorite player, but dad was definitely the biggest influence on me. Certainly, yeah. And then you had granddad too, uh, Ray Boone, of course, and, uh, such a great family. You were drafted by the Seattle Mariners in 1990. Uh, what do you remember most, Brett, about your major league debut? Uh, debut was a little different for me. You know, that was the, because there was a lot of hype around being the first third generation player. To me, it, it really wasn't a big deal. I didn't care. I just wanted to get to the big leagues. Right. And, uh, I was in AAA, and there was a rumor starting to go around that, you know, the Mariners weren't playing that well that year. And uh, I knew I was going to get called up in September, but they were talking about maybe before that. I I didn't know. And I I remember I got a base hit to right field, rounded first, and and I came back to first base, and there was a pinch runner coming out to run for me. Oh, man. I kind of looked at him, and I said, what's the problem here? And he said, you know, (laughs) Skip told me to run for you. I said, why? He said, I didn't, you know, the guy, it's not his fault. He goes, I don't know. I was just told, I was just told to come run for you by the manager. Next thing I know, the manager comes out of the dugout and he says, uh, what are you doing? I said, nobody needs to run for me. He goes, I'm the manager and I'm telling you you're out of the game. You didn't hustle down the line. So now I'm getting into, I'm jaw to jaw with him saying, you know, well, I can't really say what I was saying then, but. You know, through my helmet, and next thing you know, I'm, I'm back in the dugout, and he looks at me, and he smiles, and he says, I'm just kidding. He said, you're going to the big leagues. And I kind of went, oh, my goodness. So <laughs> that's that's the last thing I remember. I went home. I couldn't sleep. I called my dad. I called my grandpa. I uh, got on a plane the next morning to Baltimore. I uh, went from the from the airport to the to the ballpark, got there right before batting practice. There was a bunch of people around to ask about that third generation thing i took bp next thing you know i was in the game and and i I don't remember much i do remember uh being a little bit nervous uh the last play of the game i think we ended the game on a double play ball and i just said just get through this cleanly and and i did and uh you know, the rest is history. <laughs> yeah. A, a month and a month and a half later, I, I was hitting 197 my first year. Uh, I got called up and, and I remember sitting there talking to a buddy of mine going, wow, this, this big league is hard. This isn't like AAA. <laughs> and he looked at me and kind of gave me that no, no blank, you know, and, uh, and that's what we do as kids when we're getting called up and you got to learn. You learn at each yeah. level, you fall down, you get back up, but, uh, yeah, that's that's kind of, in a nutshell, my call-up story. We're speaking with Brett Boone tonight. Yeah, that's a pretty wild story about the manager uh, pulling you out like that. That's pretty it good. Was pretty, it yeah. was pretty good. <laughs> pretty, pretty good joke. Now, now, we're looking at the Mariners. You, you said that they weren't that great when you came up. Uh, 2001, they won 116 games. Now, you made it to the AL Championship Series. Of course, we remember what happened there. Uh, tell us a little bit about that Mariner ball club, though, because it certainly was a memorable one. 
Yeah, it was, um, you know, up until that point in my career, I, I didn't believe in team chemistry or, or anything like that. I, I was of the opinion of, uh, you have a great team and you, and you, you roll it out there and you beat other people because you're better than them. Uh, until that 2001 year came along, we had a great team. Um, the, the, you know, they weren't picking us to, to do anything close to what we did. I mean, you could never forecast 116 wins, but we knew we were good. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were veteran, you know, we were, we had a lot of veterans on that team. Um, and really good all around, but as that season took off, in April we won 20 games, in May we won another 20 games. And we were just kind of looking around, and we all knew at that point something special was going on. And uh, like I said, it was, a, <clears throat> it was a veteran team, and we got to a point where it wasn't arrogance, it was a confidence. It was a look, it was a gesture uh, in the dugout. You know, if we were down by two in the seventh inning, not only did we know, but the other team know, knew that we were going to come and get them. And more times than not, we did that year. I mean, to win that many games. And at, and at one point, you know, for me, I was, I was 10 years in at that point. I had, I had had some great years in the big leagues, been on some great teams. I'd had some tough years and been on some, some teams that didn't do so well. So as much as I was enjoying myself, I, I appreciated it because I know how hard this game is and it doesn't come along. It was a once in a lifetime, uh, type season, not only for myself, but, but to win that many games. You know, there's a reason it's never been done. It's only been done, you know, that's the record. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a reason for that. And the only thing that, you know, and we still kick it around today, the guys from that team, when we get together, we still kind of look at each other like, how could we not finish the deal? And, you know, I looked to the Dodgers a year ago. You know, they won 111 games, and, and the next thing you know, they get bounced by San Diego. That's why this game, I think, is the greatest game, because you just never know. And, uh, well, you know, as we get older and older, I'm sure that that every time we do get together, that team has a little bit of a reunion. We're still going to be going, how did we not finish the deal? I remember getting in that in that bus after that Yankees series when we had lost the series and just looking around at, at the teammates, like this is not how it was supposed to end. Right. Almost a, a, almost a shock. Uh, but you can't take away what we did that year. It was a great time. Uh, have a lot of great memories and, and some, some great relationships formed, uh, from that team of 2001. History, Brett, is full of guys, full of teams that got burnt like you guys did. And, uh, like you say, that's why the, what makes the game so great is is you got to play the game, and somebody somebody's going to win. And a lot of times, it isn't the best team. But I, I saw recently where you signed an autograph. Uh, the guy made you write Bob Boone's kid with an arrow. Yeah, it, it, it was pretty <laughs> cool. Um, you know, he waited in line for a while. Actually, yeah. he said, "Brett, I, I really wanted to get your autograph." He goes, "But." He goes, I love your dad. You know, I grew up watching your dad. He goes, uh, can you put something funny, you know? And I said, what do you want me to put? He goes, you know, like Bob Boone's kid or something. I said, I've never had that request before, but I said, I think it'd be awesome. Like, I'll show it to my dad. He'll, he'll get a <laughs> kick out of it. So that was pretty I, I good. I signed it for him and I told him, I said, listen, I need a picture of you, uh, to prove that this really happened. So I took the picture and yeah, I think I put it on social media. Yeah. I thought it was, it was funny. But, uh, you know what? Good. Stuff like that. Stuff like that's really cool, and I, and I told my son, uh, he's in the minor leagues, I told him today, 
when he saw that post, he goes, what is that? And I said, you know what, buddy? I said, one day, if, if I ever have to sign Jake Boone's dad, I said, then you did pretty good. Bro. Right. <laughs> so, I, I'll be more than happy to do that. Right, Brett? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Now, you played with some great guys. Uh, I think I know who you're going to mention, but who's the most talented guy you ever played with? Well, you've probably heard me say it before. No, that's that, that kind of goes without. I, I got a chance with a lot of great players. Uh, a lot of great hitters, a lot of great defenders. The best all around, without a doubt, Griffey Jr. Right. The best ta- talent I've ever played with. Not the best talent I've ever seen. Best talent I've ever played with. The best talent you've ever seen, I think uh, you said, was Bonds, right? Bonds and no one's even close. Yeah. And- My opinion. And I think the opinion of everybody that kind of played in, in Barry's era. Uh, mm-hmm. There was just nobody that could come close. I mean, such... We talk about it all the time, and there's a lot of great hitters from that generation, the, the, the late 80s through the 90s through the early 2000s. But pound for pound, there, there's not a man alive that could protect him in a lineup when he was in that zone. It just it didn't matter who you put behind him. Mm-hmm. Put the greatest of all time behind him. It doesn't matter. Barry was that good, and, and it was uh, amazing to watch. We are speaking with Brett Boone tonight on Sports Talk New York. How about the nastiest, filthiest pitcher you ever faced? Uh, I get, get that asked a lot. I've narrowed it down. You know, there were a lot of great ones. Randy was no walk in the park. Pedro, for about four or five years, was was tough. Uh, but for me, I just remember that 90s and, and going into Atlanta. And so I sum it up this way now. Maddox Smoltz Glavin. And yeah. it seemed like every time I went to Atlanta, it was Maddox, Smoltz, Glavin, and you didn't miss them. Uh, they were just so good. You know, the, the best pitching staff I've ever seen, uh, one, two, three, three legitimate ace number one guys, and uh, they did it for a decade. And, and um, for me, that was the toughest. That was a nightmare. I hated going to Atlanta. The one year I got to play for the Braves in 99, I remember getting traded. And, and the first thing – that went through my mind wasn't I'm going to good chance of going to the playoffs, maybe a world series. My first thought was I don't have to face those guys. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, but and there were so many guys that, that, that had really, you know, great stuff. Like I mentioned, Randy and, and Pedro, they're the guys that don't get mentioned that much. The Kevin Browns of the world out of, out, you know, when he was playing in LA. Right. There were just so many good guys, but those, those five guys right there, uh, that's a pretty good list to start. Sure are. Yeah. That's why they're, they're, uh, enshrined in Cooperstown. That is for sure. Now, n- nowadays, Brett, every, every guy comes to the plate. He's got his own, his own music. Uh, what would your music be these days, uh, walking up to the plate? I think I'd stick with the same. It's, uh, what is it? Crazy Train Butterfly. I love <laughs> that song. You know, um, and I had it. At the end of my career, we started to have, you know, in the early 2000s, they started to have walk-up songs, and we all had one. I loved it. It had nothing to do with the lyrics or anything. I just liked the groove. It kind of got me into that that mode. Um, if I was playing today, I don't know what it would be. It, it, you know, I'd probably get pretty... Uh, I'd probably get original and, and maybe have a, a more modern song. Yeah. Uh, but I really haven't got into it that much. But, yeah, you, know, you pick a song that makes you feel good walking to the plate. And it's like, all right, whatever. You know, it's kind of like the song when you go to work out. 
Some guys like certain artists, some guys like others. Whatever gets you through that next set, uh, is, is what works for you. And that's probably how I pick my, my walk-up song. That's what you go with. You're right. Brett Boone with us again tonight. The rules, the rules have been changed, Brett, in the great game of ours. Now, I don't know whether you're, you, you're for that, against it, with Manfred, against Manfred, but we, we, we've got some differences coming up this year that I want to discuss with you. One is the pitch timer. Two is the, the, uh, evolution, ever-evolving shift. And three is the pizza box out there that's first base. Uh, let, let's, let's start, uh, with the, uh, the pitch timer. Give me your impression of that. Well, I, I still got some questions about the pitch clock. I understand okay. the premise yeah. behind it. I understand the premise. And now, you know, I'm, I'm going on, to, on 17 years retired. So, or, or 15 years to, to, uh, and I always told myself I'm not going to be that guy. That sits back and says, oh, the game was the greatest when I played it and nothing else. I, I've come to, you know, I give everything a chance now. It's, it's a different game now. Yes, some of the things I like, some of the things I don't like. Uh, that doesn't mean I just dismiss everything. I, I, I'm a big fan of, I think the players today can learn a lot, uh, from the players of my generation, players of my dad's generation. But I also think we as ex-players need to listen to the players of today because we can learn from them too. And so I always take that attitude when, when anything, yeah, some of the rule changes, I loved, I really like the, the replays that they put in that they didn't have in my generation. I, I, I think a, a blown call that ends a, a big game, I, I want them to get it right. So I'm all for some of the rules. Uh, the pitch clock, I, I don't know. I'm going to, I'm kind of on a wait and see. Yeah. My questions are, I, I think the, the hitters aren't going to have that many problems with it. You know, I'm, I'm thinking of myself as an offensive player. I wasn't quick to get back in the box, but I didn't take my time either. So I think I could adjust for that pretty easy. I think it's going to be tougher for the pitcher, and I have a lot of questions that surround it. As a second baseman, can I come in and and uh, give my pitcher a breather when I know he needs to take a break? Uh, is that is that possible? If, if a bug flies in my eye, can I step out, or is that going to cost me a strike? If I'm arguing with the home plate umpire, he takes his mask off and argues with me, does the pitch clock stop? Does it start? Right. Uh, is the umpire is the is the umpire the ultimate uh, judge and jury? I I, I want to know. I think these things are going to be worked out. Uh, I t- had David Ross on on the uh, my podcast recently, and I was going over it with him. He said he had just learned all these new rules, and I said, "How is that a challenge managing?" And he said, "Well, now the third base coach, I got to get him the signs, and we got to get the signs to the hitter really quick." There's no time for, you know, taking your time, stepping out of the box, getting the signs. It's get it. And, and I, my question is, if you don't get the signs, you know, we always see that in the course of a game where maybe it's a bunt situation. Maybe it's a, it's a player that's not in there all the time and he's not getting the signs. So they have that powwow. He goes down right. and meets with that third base coach. You can't do that anymore. So I think it's going to be a, a trial and error. Uh, and, you know, I, I had something kicked around the other day. They said, well, how about the seventh, eighth, and ninth inning? They turn that pitch clock off when, when the game gets really serious and maybe a big situation. You, and, and those are little things that are going to come and go. I, I, I understand what they're trying to do, speed up the game. But at the same time, I don't think the fans want to see a game decided by a ball four or, or a strike three because they didn't get in the box and, 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 and finish the sequence before the timer went off. 
I don't think fans want to see that, but, but I understand what they're trying to do in the speed up rule. The thing I went to, uh, I was in Mariners camp the other day and I did a few, few innings on the radio. And the one thing I noticed, man, it is a lot faster. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's a result of, okay, as a hitter, I know I got to get in the box. So now uh, as, you know, as a result of, of me being aware that we have to be ready to go within 20 seconds, am I putting the ball in play more often? Am I, sw- am I in swing mode a little bit more than I normally would be? I don't know. But I, I know this. I was in the, I was in the booth for four innings and it was the fastest four innings I've seen in a lot of years. Yeah. Yeah, I agree with you. The Mets, I was watching the Met game the other day, and I want to apologize to you for not putting uh, your favorite picture of yourself in the Mets uniform up on social media this week <laughs> with, with, with the blonde yeah, hair. The blonde hair. Yeah. The blonde hair, yeah. <laughs> but uh, Max I Scherzer. Through, I was going through a phase. Yeah. Max ran into some problems the other day where he got called for a balk, and he, he uh, for, for quick pitching somebody, and I think, He's trying to make a point. I think he's trying to exploit some of the uh, the changes uh, for his own good, which is, you know, the mark of a master. And uh, we'll have to see how that works out. But it was interesting the other day with Scherzer. And uh, I just just wanted. I saw, to... I saw he held he held the ball, held the ball, held the ball. Timeout. Right. Back in, and he's ready to go. Yeah. As a hitter, I'm not going to like that. Yeah. No, I, I agree. They, they've got to work out all these kinks. You know, anything new. Like I said, I'm keeping an open mind. Uh, I, I, I like uh, being separate and unique. Uh, the, the sport of Major League Baseball, we're the only major sport that doesn't have a timer, doesn't have a clock. Mm-hmm. Uh, time is irrelevant. And now all of a sudden, we do have one. So uh, at first, I didn't like what I heard, but I also thought, you know, I'm going to have an open mind and, and see how it goes. It's funny to me in spring training, I think Manny Machado was the first hitter to kind of be dinged with this new rule and he had a strike called on him. And it was all fun and games and everybody's laughing about, it. well, that's spring training. You yeah. Know, let's see how it goes right. when the games count and you get that called on you. I don't think that we're going to get the same uh, sound bite after the game from Manny Machado. No, it's not going to be as funny. That's true, Brett. Yeah. Uh, how about the restrictions on the shift? Once again, I, I'm not a big fan of the shift to begin with, but I also think that teams should be able to place their defense however they want. So I, I don't think they should have got rid of the shift, to be honest with you. I, I think I think it should be you can you have nine players, you can put them anywhere on the field you want. But now they've changed that. You saw a loophole uh, where they brought the I think it was the left fielder into right field uh against i think it was joey gallo who's been a big uh the shift has been a big nemesis to him right yeah you know i've been thinking about this shift a lot and and the young players coming up today and, and these athletes today and um everything's getting a little too technical it's almost like we're we're going on a golf simulator and and we're having a robotic swing i think the more robotic and your, your swing becomes, the more predictable the outcome of your swing becomes. And I think that's why the shift started to work. Uh, whereas the great hitters still, they'll beat the shift. Does that make sense? I, I'm trying yeah. to rack my brain on why does the shift work? Why does it become predictable? I'm thinking, you know, I always think back to, to my time. And if you put a shift on Tony Gwynn, he'd laugh at you. Yeah. But Tony Gwynn didn't have a robotic way of, of preparing 
So I don't know if that's a detriment to the game, being robotic and, and talking about angles and, and uh, you know, I, all these things that we do in, in the modern day. I think, you know, they have their time. Do they work? Time will tell. Do people like that better? Time will tell. I, I think each and every generation will be judged on, on, on what the fans of that generation think. Perhaps the, the uh, most bizarre Brett is the bigger bases. Uh, you, you can you can actually tell looking looking at the bases now that they they are bigger. They're, they're only three inches uh, bigger, I believe. From they went from fifteen square to eighteen square. Uh, the distance from home to first is reduced by three inches. Uh, it's supposed to be done for player safety, and I, I don't see the impact here. Do you? Well, I I think you know, yeah. I, home the first is three inches closer. Right. The first baseman's three inches closer to the throw he's receiving from the shortstop as well. So I don't think you get the advantage home the first. I think we're going to see the advantages home the second, going first to third on a base hit. Uh, you're going to get there that much quicker. Uh, and, and when I say that much quicker, three inches quicker to be to be precise. Um, I don't know. I, I think the the big bases. I think they're kind of irrelevant. But I'll tell you, since they've have this slow mo now, the new rules are you know you have to physically be on the bag. When I was playing, guys could take you out at second base, and turning a double play was an art. Um, right. And and to to create that, I had to be. You know, I wasn't always standing on the bag when I delivered that ball to first base because it was kind of as long as you were in the vicinity, the neighborhood the play, right? New. The neighborhood play, and that's mm-hmm. how we play because, yeah, guys were trying to take your head off and blow you into left field. <laughs> right. That was the way the rules were there. Nowadays, you have to be physically touching that base at all times, and they'll break out that slow-mo, and, and there's no way around it. So I think the bigger base is going to help the defenders in the middle of the diamond. Okay. Now, I want to talk to you about uh, your podcast. Brett Boone, folks, has a tremendous podcast. Uh, tell us a little bit how you started and uh, how things are going. I started right when COVID hit. Mm-hmm. Uh, my agent my agent said, I want you to do a podcast, get some reps, and work on your delivery. And I, I, I really didn't want to do it, Billy, to be honest with you. And uh, <clears throat> I started a buddy of mine. Uh, we work out at the same gym. Um, and I, and I went to him and I said, let's, let's do a pod. I want you to be my first guest on the podcast. Then it went from there to, and that was Andre Reed. He was kind of the guinea pig for me. Then I called, uh, my buddy Griffey and I said, Junior, I need you to do the podcast for me. He said, no problem. It started there. Um, and it's really, it, it turned into what it is. Recently, uh, yeah. we, we went in, we're partners now with Odyssey, uh, they just, we just uh, had an agreement with them, so that's going to be announced in the next week or so. So that that's a really cool thing. Um, but it's been something that's kind of progressed over the last two years. You know, I've learned a lot. I, I've come to appreciate this side of the microphone. You know, as a player, uh, I've been gone through thousands of interviews. Uh, I didn't really have an appreciation for the other side as much as I do now. The preparation and, and the work that goes into it, right? Uh, I didn't know. And now I, I I know and and I appreciate it and I'm and I'm kind of uh, I'm, I'm humbled by it because for all these years I thought uh, you know all you're doing is asking me these questions no there's a lot of prep work and and uh, stuff that goes into it I've learned a lot I've got a great team behind me couldn't have done it without them they've really helped me through this 
and and it's been an educational process for me from from the preparation to how you ask questions to to uh, how you breathe. It, it, it's all been it's all been uh, a work in progress, but it, it's been a really cool thing. It's doing really well, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll see where it goes. But you know, for now. Uh, we're going really well. Are you looking to to stay uh, on the other side of the mic, Brett, and maybe get into the booth? I I think so for now. Yeah, for now. You sure. Know, I, I, I've kind of made that leap of yeah, maybe I will uh, go into the booth. Uh, ultimately, one day maybe I'll be back on the field in uniform. I don't know, but but uh, I'm just going to keep going forward, see where it takes me. You know, at this stage of my life, uh, I've got a lot of things to be thankful for. You know, I've. I've got to do a lot of things. Uh, you know, I have a great family. I, I had a great career. I I still love the game of baseball, and, and I'm just going to go where it takes me. I don't really have expectations. Oh, I've got to be here by a certain date. No, it's wherever it takes me, it takes me. If one day I'm back in the field in uniform, then I am. If one day I'm, I'm at ESPN in the booth, uh, that's another thing. So we'll, we'll see where it goes. But uh, nice. sky's the limit, and, and I'm not really putting any – expectations or or like i said i i don't need to be anywhere tomorrow we'll see where it takes me wonderful brett boone's podcast folks check it out uh very as he said very professionally done very well done tremendous guests and brett it's been a pleasure to have you back on the show i thank you for taking time away from your family to spend some of your sunday night with us here on long island and we look forward uh to more of the podcast and uh we'll keep in touch and talk to you down the line You got it, Billy. Thank you. Take care. Brett Boone, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we will welcome in the great Jim Messina. So stick around, folks. You're listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we are back with Sports Talk New York here on WGBB in beautiful downtown Merrick, Long Island. Spring training in high gear in Florida and Arizona, the World Baseball Classic beginning soon. Uh, caught some games on TV over the weekend. Glad to have the game back. Opening day, 25 days away. But now, as is our habit from time to time, we switch gears and bring you a great from the field of music. I always enjoy that. I hope you guys do as well. Our next guest, a musician, songwriter, singer-guitarist, recording engineer, and a record producer. He was a member of the great Buffalo Springfield, a founding member of the uh, really pioneer country rock band Poco, and, of course, half of Loggins and Messina with Kenny Loggins. He and his band will be playing the Suffolk Theater out in Riverhead, great little venue on April 14th. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Mr. Jim Messina. Jim, good evening. 
Good evening. It's my pleasure to be here, too. How fun. Wonderful. Wonderful to have you with us, Jim. Let's have some fun now. Uh, your dad. Your dad was a, a great guitarist in his own right, and he is really your musical influence, isn't he? Absolutely. I, I can remember when I was five years old watching him play his guitar after he would come home from work, and uh, you know he he would use all of his fingers. And as I as I got older, I realized he was playing like you know Merle Travis, or he was playing like Chet Atkins and stuff. And uh, he, uh-huh. He really had it down, and I've got some pictures of him with his little band. He had a band with himself, a guy named Angelo, and, and another one named Breezy. Of course, we're all Italian, so it makes sense that those names would be a part of his crew. <laughs> right, yeah. Now, now musically, uh, who did you enjoy listening to when you were young? Well, I, I don't know if it was so much in, enjoyed, but what I was subject to Ah, okay. <laughs> was eventually what I, you know, started to appreciate. But, you know, in and, and, and one household, my parents were, you know, were divorced. So in one house with my father, who was, again, of Italian descent, and his interest in music was really, uh, I guess you would call Western swing, you know, with, uh, uh, you know, uh, Spade Cooley was one of the artists he would listen to, you know, Bob Wills and the Texas Playboys, um, you know, th- that kind of music. Mm-hmm. Lefty Frizzell, you know, which was a country. Uh, and my mother's side, uh, you know, she had remarried to somebody from Arkansas. So his interests were, uh, you know, Johnny Cash as a contemporary at that time, but Hank Snow, Hank Thompson, um those those were the real deep country uh people of course patsy klein my mother loved me on patsy klein what a great great artist she was and then as i grew up you know and i started becoming more of who i am and what i was to be you know i enjoyed listening to the ventures when i was in you know like the seventh grade right that's where i started going oh gee i that's a really nice sounding instrument. What is that? Oh, that's a Fender. Um, you know, and, uh, of course I loved instrumental music because my father was an instrumentalist. So, you know, the, the Ventures, the Torquays, uh, one group that I, uh, enjoyed was the Champs. You remember the Champs? Don't yes. But that, you know, tequila. Yeah. That was, uh, I, I love the sound of the symbols on that, you know, that, and it was that sound, those sounds that got me to go out and buy 45s and then I would listen to them and try to learn how to play those songs. So, um, it, it all, it all was just part of, I think, what happens in, in, in the musical repertoire of a, a young boy between five years old and, and 12 starting to develop an interest in in music because of what he hears, what I heard, the sounds that I heard, um, that eventually at 13 I went into high school at an early age, so started my my ninth grade at 13 years of age, graduated at 17, so um, I actually had a band all the way through high school from that age. So you, you did, you recorded an LP at 16 years old, Jim. I know, I can't believe that. Yeah. Yeah, I did. <laughs> that that was with the band, folks. Jim Messina and his Jesters, sixteen yeah, and years old. Yeah, surf album. I yeah, into surf music because I lived, I lived uh, at my 
eighth grade, I was I was in um, Redondo Beach uh, in California, and um, all us kids used to wear, you know, Converse tennis shoes and Levi's and <laughs> Towncraft T-shirts and Pendleton Pendleton shirts, and so that was the that was the thing, and that was the music. So when my parents uh, uprooted me from you know the most wonderful place in the world I, I could have wanted to be at which was the beach they brought me into the inland empire which was all orange groves and you know and tractors and john deers and stuff yeah. like that. suddenly i was future farmers of america was was what was around me not the future surfers of america but um right. you know and i think that's what made made it work for me i mean i i it was someplace i didn't want to be and the only thing i had was my guitar and and uh, that was that was my uh, that was really my out uh, getting out of the getting out of that place on earth right tell us how you ended up uh, with buffalo springfield jim well i was record i was a recording engineer at the time in 1966 and i was working at a place called sunset sound recorders and uh, you know we we had acts like uh, the Tijuana brass for Albert. Uh, Brazil 66, we had um, Claudine Lager, um, we had The Doors, oh, um, okay. we had a, a lot of different acts that were going through there, and I just one day got assigned to um, an act that um, was a demo, and I was asked if I could come in in the morning and, and uh, you know, and do a session, and, and I said, well, with who and what is it? And they said, well, it's just a demo, and it's with David Crosby. And I said, uh, huh, is, is that Bing Crosby's son? <laughs> she goes, no, 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 don't even ask. Yeah. <laughs> so, so anyway, I ended up, long story short, because I know we're on the radio, um, I, I, I recorded this woman, uh, a young woman, her, her, her demos, and at the end of the session, I said, who's the producer? And he says, well, this is David Crosby. And I said, who, who might, who might this, this singer songwriter be? And he says, well, that's Joni Mitchell. So, you know, I wrote her name down on the on the tapes, and that was the first time that uh, Joni had come in and recorded anything professional. That she, I think, they used that that tape to get her a job at uh, at A and M, or signed as an artist, I should say. And it was David who told uh, Neil uh, and Stephen that they had met a young engineer at Sunset Sound Recorders, and that they might consider having him, um, you know, be on your be on your record. So mm-hmm. that's how that happened. Nice, nice story, and uh, some some great names you're dropping. Love it, love it, Jim. <laughs> Speaking with Jim, well, Messina. you know, they, they they were people that were not that successful in those days. Yeah. So we, you know, it was just it was the it was the local folks recording. And uh, after after Buffalo Springfield disbanded, you and Richie Fury uh, f- formed another band, which of course is Poco. That's right. Uh, Poco was really kind of formed out of uh, uncertainty. Uh, I remember um, Richie and I were in the back seat of a car, I think, going a taxi, I should say, going to a um, music store, and we were still in the Springfield, and, and uh, I was still finishing up that last album, and I asked him what he wanted to do, and he said, you know, I just really don't know. And I said, well, I'd, you know, I wouldn't mind working with you if you'd like to work, and and uh, he said, well, what would we do? And I said, well, I, I don't think we want to do folk rock because you know, that's what the Springfield really was. And you know, things were moving away from it at that point in time. And I said, but, you know, you've written songs like 
Charles claim to fame and kind woman and you know I have some songs that I'm thinking that are really kind of more country I said maybe we should think about doing sort of fuck rock how about some more country rock and he said well let's see what happens so when we went to New York to finish up the Buffalo Springfield I had recorded a song of Richie's there called kind woman and uh regrettably the guys didn't show up for the session on the time they were supposed to Neil had didn't didn't really come to New York as Ahmed had asked us to do and uh, Stephen was there but he got caught up in the village and of course Dewey Martin um, you know anyone who really knew Dewey very well knew he was a very spiritual guy and uh, um, he showed up and he was extremely well he enjoyed the spirits let's put it that way and <laughs> and so spirited that I couldn't sit on the, the seat so uh, Arif Mardin um, who was working there with Ahmed and uh, said, hey, I'll, I'll get you some of the best cats in New York to get your sessions done. So he did. But I didn't realize that, that most of the best cats in, in, in New York musicians were, were jazz. And so mm-hmm. we ended up doing a few songs there that were a little bit out of the ordinary as to what I had as a producer uh, in mind for, you know, for the Springfield. So again, we ended up uh, in, in L.A., at uh, Sunset Sound Recorders where I was working to finish that album and a friend of mine had recommended a, a steel player rather than us, you know, hiring Sneaky Pete or Buddy Emmons or, you know, uh, any of those folks. Um, a guy named Rusty Young who lived in, in Colorado who he, he knew. So we flew him out and we were recording him and in the process of recording it, I looked over at Richie and I said, man, you know, this guy's near our age and, and uh, I think he he might be the, what we need to do. What we talked about, maybe doing that country rock thing. We got a steel guitar, and if we write the right songs, maybe it'll it'll catch on. So that was really the the birth of Poco before it ever really got started. And then uh, once once Rusty came out, and uh, uh, we knew uh, you know that Randy Meisner had been working with Ricky Nelson and had was in the community and. So we reached out to him to see if he'd like to form a, a group where he would be a member as opposed to just a bandmate. And uh, he accepted. And uh, we brought George in. George was a, a drummer in, in Rusty's band. And that, that made the five pieces that we needed to, to have a band. And the rest, as they say, history, it's folks. History. Yeah. And uh, I, I want to mention to the folks also, you as a producer, Jim, Jim Messina is uh, kind enough to be with us tonight on the program. He will be at the Suffolk Theater on April 14th, folks. Uh, Kenny Loggins, you, you were just supposed to be his producer. You weren't collaborating with him at all. You, you had to deal with Clive Davis with that, didn't you? Well, yeah, but, you know, I, I, a lot of people say, um, first of all, Clive, Clive was on to Kenny before I was. In fact, he had been turned on to Kenny by... Guy by the name of Don Ellis, and um, Don had convinced him that that uh, he might be, you know, worthy of of making a record. So Don Don asked me when I was still in New York working on uh, the last uh, Poco album, which was Delivering, if I'd be interested in hearing uh, his friend's little brother Kenny Loggins. And I said, you know, when I get back to California, I'll I'll have more time. And I was also in the process of of, of trying to figure out whether I could really work as an independent producer. Um, but when I finally got back, um, 
I understood that Kenny had some tapes, and that's what they wanted me to hear. But when I got back and he finally showed up, I asked him if I could, you know, hear some tapes. And he said, well, I, I don't have any. And I said, uh, oh, um, well, why don't you grab your guitar and you know, play some t- some of your tunes? Mm-hmm. Well, I don't own a guitar. And at that moment, I thought, yes, Donnell is pulling my leg here. Well, I mean, <laughs> it, you know, first of all, Kenny was 6'2", and, you know, had a part on the side of his hair, he had a huge, funky beard and braces on his teeth. And I thought, what am I going to do with this? Right? <laughs> um, but as time went on, I, I really, um, you know, that, that night we re- he, he recorded, I gave him my guitar to use, and he recorded Danny's song in Pooh Corner. Uh, I think the Behevola was there, uh, a little bit of uh, a song called Love, My Love's Gonna Tumble on You. Um, and after he left, my wife had cooked some tacos for us for a dinner. After he left, my wife said, Jenny, she said, what, what do you think? And I said, you know, I don't, I don't know what to think. I said, I, he's writing a lot of folk songs, you know, and I said, we're way past Peter, Paul, and Mary. And, uh, I mean, here we are with, you know, Leon Russell, uh, Dave Mason, uh, you know, you're looking at Delaney and Bonnie. It's a whole new world out there. And I said, I really don't know. And it took me a couple of days to think about it. So I brought him back over just to kind of see what else he had or, you know, looked at some of his tunes and I wanted to know if he could play, you know, because he didn't own a guitar. Uh, so I sat him down. We played some parts together. I gave him some ideas to play on um, House of the Corner which was a total def- departure from what the Nitty Gritty Dirt Band had done with that song. I thought it should be more ethereal, more childlike, more along the lines of what the lyric was describing. So I, I gave him some ideas to uh, work with me to do a duet, at, at making it more Baroque. Um, and, you know, he was having fun and was comfortable and he was doing a good job. And long story short, I mean, I just realized that Kenny loved music a di- more, more diversified music than than uh, than than what he was recording, you know, with me. I, I could hear that he really he loved doing rock and roll. You know, he had a voice that could uh, do blue-eyed soul. He had a voice that you know could do country if he really wanted to. And he got that voice uh, first of all from God, but secondly, you know, he worked for a, a publishing company, and the way he got his job was that. Uh, you know, if they needed a Leon Russell song, he could write a song that sounded like Leon Russell, both in, in lyric and in the sound of his voice, or or Elton John, or you know, or, or uh, James Taylor. He just had the, that really innate ability to mm-hmm. uh, do that. And uh, and what I got from that was is that he had the he had the wherewithal to want to do something more than just folk music. And to be honest with you, I, I could not, you know, uh, I, I just could, could not, I mean, for instance, you know, uh, Dan Fogelberg had asked me before Kenny if I'd produce him. And I said, you know, why would you choose me? And he said, well, I, you know, I, I just love Poco and, and what you did with Poco is so great. I want to make a Poco record. And I said, Dan, I've got to tell you the truth. I said, Poco music was too country for the rock stations and too rock for the con- uh, yeah. you know for the country stations and it, it, we just couldn't get airplay and um, I, I just can't make another record like that and uh, I said you need to find somebody who'll do that for you but I just can't do it but with Kenny I could see that the potential was there 
it's just that it was going to take a lot of work, uh, given that he, you know, didn't have any money really, he was poor, um, had never, you know, been a band leader or had a manager or an agent or, you know, got his first attorney, uh, getting his record deal there with, with, uh, Columbia. It was going to be a big, it's going to be a big job, but, um, I stuck with it. it. Took me about a year to 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 get that to happen, and we finally put all the pieces. I helped him put his band together, and and to get back to your point about Clive Davis, is that you know one of the reasons why I went to Clive to get a a, a job as an independent producer with them was that I was tired of touring, didn't want to be on the road, mm-hmm. um, and uh, so when I brought this these recordings that I had made, these demos for Clive to see what it was that he had. He's a sharp guy. You know, he said, uh, <laughs> yeah, I like this music, but I'm hearing an awful lot of you in it. And I said, yeah, I I've, I've really needed to get in and step up to help get the band and help him get things going, And, and uh, which is something I want to talk to you about. I said, I'd really like to have you consider um, having me sit in with him on this first solo record so that I could be there to help him uh, on the road, getting the sets together. I can introduce him to my Buffalo Springfield fans, uh, my Poco fans, um, help him get recognition. And, you know, to be honest with you, I, I want this record to sell. And if it doesn't sell, then I don't get anything out of it. You don't get anything out of it. Kenny doesn't get anything out of it. Um, and he was pretty much against it at first. And... uh just didn't want to see a band break up. Now, to his credit, I mean, a lot, a lot of times bands get together, they, they make a big splash, they put a lot of money in the record company. And you have to realize in, in those days, record companies were, they had an artist development department, and they were helping out in any way they can, whether it's to get demos, whether it's some tour support, you know, helping the bands to get recognized was, wasn't an, a, a big investment. And then, of course, you had the recording costs. And, um, you know, many artists, you know, they we're artists. We have a tendency to to sip on things too much or smoke on things too much. And <laughs> before you know it, it, it's costing a lot more than it should. Uh, so, you know, he'd been there, done that, and he was worried about just the band breaking up. It would, And I had to explain to him, I said, look, I'm, I'm not really in the band. I, I, I'm a... I'm a recording artist that's sharing the spotlight here on one album, just like Stan Getz or Charlie Bird would have done, just like Leon Russell did, you know, with Joe Cocker, um, or, or, you know, Bonnie and Delaney. And eventually he said, okay. And, uh, so that first tour with Kenny was really just to help him get started and help get that record out there. And hopefully my first album, uh, on CBS, to be somewhat of a success so that at least I have some credibility. But lo and behold, it was sold a lot more than any of us ever expected. And as a right. result, Clive, you know, had asked if I'd consider staying with Kenny and working with him as, as, uh, as a duo, which I didn't want to do, but, you know, he did, he said something that was really important and I, I'll never forget this. He said, you know, Jimmy, I know how much you'd like to be home and in, 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 in producing records. Uh, and I also want you to just think about that. This doesn't happen to to too many people even once in their life. And you have the opportunity to perhaps 
make this become something more than you ever thought you could or would. And I said, well, let me think about it, but Kenny needs to be able to be a part of this decision, too. So if that's something he wants to do, then then I'll consider it. And as it turned out, Kenny thought, you know, he said, hey, look, things are working. Let's let's keep it going. So that's pretty much how how it started as Loggins and Messina. It was supposed to be just sitting in on his and his album to help him uh, get started. But uh, our voices blended well, and, it, and to this day, both of us will admit We've sung with a lot of other people, but there's something magic about the two of us when we sing together. Sure is. Yeah, it really worked out. Eighth, eighth grade, your mama don't dance. I mean, that, that was it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, my, my sister, my oldest sister had all the Poco albums, the Buffalo Springfield albums, but uh, eighth grade, that was it. That was the hook right there for everybody. <laughs> yeah. Because our mamas did not dance and our daddies did not rock and roll. Not at all, Jim, no. <laughs> now, uh, I want to ask you, uh, on April 14th out at the Suffolk Theater, uh, what can this, the folks expect from you and the guys out there that night? Well, I'm going to be bringing a full band. I'm, I'm very fortunate. I have got some great players uh, assembled. Um, I've got uh, my drummers, Jack Bruno, who's who is working... Um, in the business for quite a while, uh, and um, you know, and I, I've got Stevie Nieves who, uh, well, actually, Jack, you know, with, worked with Tina Turner and Joe Cocker, and uh, so he's got some history. Uh, Delbert McClinton, he's got some great history as a player. Uh, Stevie Nieves is on uh, percussion and sax, and he he was with us uh, with Kenny and I in 2005 on our first reunion tour and he was also on the 2009 tour that we did together uh, the other uh, the other one and I've got um, uh, on, uh, I've got keyboards with me now uh, James Fraser uh, he sings as well as Steve Nieves sings got a young bass player by the name of Ben King he's about my son's age he's about 31 and man is he a hell of a player this guy is just super and uh also a singer. So I've got four singers, five pieces. Uh, we're gonna do songs that most people know. I start off doing, uh, an acoustic set and I'll be doing songs like uh, Watching the River Run or Pooh Corner, Danny's song, um, Thinking of You. Then I move into, um, um, I move into a couple of songs. One's called Whispering Waters on my solo album. It's about Nature Spirits, which is a lot of fun, and uh, a song that I wrote for Brooks and Dunn called Mexican Minutes. Um, I've decided to add to the set. It's it's a it's a fun song. Then we start moving to some Poco stuff. I do You Better Think Twice. Um, listen to a country song, which was, speaking of that first album that Kenny and I did, that was on that album, which Lynn Anderson got a hit on in the country market. See, I knew I could hit country, but I just couldn't do it myself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Let somebody else do it. And then we did Hol- Holiday Hotel. And uh, depending on what the uh, venue wants, we may take a break at that time and give people a chance to, you know, get a get something to sip on or powder their nose. And then we come back, and the second half is is really up-tempo. It's uh, songs like uh, The Trilogy, uh, uh, Be Free, doing... Uh, Changes, uh, golly, you need a man. Your mama don't dance. Gets in there someplace. I don't know where it's going to be, but 
uh, it'll be a full evening of acoustic country and and uh, Latin rock music. Well, that, that sounds great, Jim, and uh, we're looking forward to that, that's for sure. And I, I really appreciate you coming on, Jim. Uh, it's been a pleasure speaking with you and an honor. I thank you for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, out here on Long Island. We wish you the best, and we'll see you on April 14th. That sounds great, and you have a wonderful evening, and back to the sports. There you go. All right, Jim, you take care. <laughs> All right, take care. That's Bye-bye. Jim Messina, folks. Well, that will do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I would like to thank my guest, Brett Boone, and the great Jim Messina, my engineer, Brian Graves, and, of course, you folks for joining us. I'll see you next on March 19th. Mark that on your calendars. Till then, be safe and be well. Bill Donahue, wishing you a good evening, folks. The views expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.